Hello, everybody, and welcome back to more of a comment than a question. My name is Paul Connor, and I'm joined by my, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, just in a literally descriptive way, little helper, <laughs> Rachel Hartman. Rachel, how's it going? Um, it's it's going good. I was I was wondering what you were going to say there. Um, it is true. I'm five feet tall and. Uh, <laughs> pretty small so and helpful you, you uh, literally helped me put out the <laughs> podcast so that's true um all right I'll take it um <laughs> I'm, do- <laughs> I'm doing okay it's been a pretty busy week uh prepping for SPSB and just like trying to not abandon all the rest of my projects in the meantime and also mentoring students who are presenting at SPSB so you know, having to look over their materials. What are you? It's been a lot. Do you want to plug your uh, presentation oh, at God, SPSB? No, or? don't come. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I'm giving a virtual talk on, I think, Saturday at 6:30 a.m. Pacific time. So nobody's going to be awake for that. Um, I'm actually going to like be there in person, so I'll have to get up really early. At <laughs> 6:30. Yeah. I don't know. I think they're trying to be inclusive of different time zones. Um, which, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so for people in Turkey, for example, <laughs> that'll be a great time to, to come to my talk. Um, so I'll be talking about a review paper that's under review right now um, on uh, interventions to reduce partisan animosity. Um, so if you are interested, come to that. If not, come watch the recording. If not, don't. Um, and then also, I also have a poster in the political psych pre-conference. Okay, nice. So a couple of lines on the CV. So that's great. Um, and you're going to in person, right? You, yeah, you're actually going to be there. Yes, I will be there. So if any fans of the pod want to come hang out, uh, come find me. If any enemies of the pod want (laughs) to come throw things at me, then, uh, (laughs) I'll be the short one. I, well, you know, I mean, the Bay Area is where I'm from. There's, there's people in our, in our sort of Slack chat who are there you, that you might be able to catch up with. So that'll be great. Yep. Uh, yeah. How have you been? Uh, good. Yeah. Um, fine. Okay. Pretty bad, actually. <laughs> I, just, I was <laughs> noticing how my, my responses were getting progressively worse. No, no, I've been fine. Um, nothing, nothing, no real news to report. We should uh, we should get get cracking. Uh, we have a guest. Um, I'm pretty excited uh, about today's guest. So he is a associate professor of social psychology at Yesha University in Turkey. Studies social cognitive processes that underlie political attitudes, and he is a friend of the pod. We could say we well, so. Yeah, sure. um, they're basically um, just on Twitter you tweeted that you liked the podcast and all of yeah, it was funny. Cause like all of a sudden we got like 50 new followers from Turkey. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I sort of reached out and said, thanks. Hey, maybe you should come on the pod. And, and now you're here. So uh, professor Sinan Alper, welcome to more of a comment than a question. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah. It's, it's great to have you here. And I mean, I, I guess, you're our first uh you're our first guest really from 
that's not from the US. Uh, oh, uh, although we did have Mickey Inslicht. I don't know. It's still North America, though. So I don't know how, how much that counts. So, yeah. Um, Our first uh, non-weird person. Non-weird. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I want to I get into that, like, that weird, non-weird distinction. But uh, first, I kind of want to hear about your background, um, how you got into studying social psychology. I mean, I, it, it almost, it probably will sound insulting, but sometimes I'm surprised to find out that people do social psychology in like far-flung regions of the world, like Turkey, which is not, and I'm not trying to say like, uh, you know, people in Turkey aren't capable of doing social psychology, but I, I sometimes am interested because it seems sometimes I, f- I think about it as a very sort of frivolous, uh, frivolous field that is not very like connected in obvious ways to practical outcomes. And I, and I often like, I often think that that is more in keeping with the sort of a, the Western sort of, um, I guess, uh, levels of uh economic development that sort of allow people to put money towards and time towards uh just these things that are just interesting right that are just like oh you know that's that's interesting you know i might not be able to justify my research output in terms of how it helps the nation economically and stuff like that so i sometimes yeah i sometimes i'm surprised when you see people in um like, I guess, less economically developed nations. Although I know, like, Turkey's not super poor, but, like, it's it's also not totally the same as, like, the US and Western Europe and, and stuff like that, who sort of do social psychology. So I'm just, I'm kind of interested in your background and how you got interested in it and what your sort of training was like. And then, yeah, like, your, your job and sort of the, the funding structure that lets you do what you do. Yeah, yeah. So, uh I was actually, you know, in, in my undergrad, I was, I was studying business. Uh, and then I kind of started becoming more interested in kind of psychology, but not like social psychology, but organizational industrial psychology kind of stuff. So I did a master's degree at, at LSE in the UK on organizational social psychology. That it was like a mixture of organizational and social psychology, as the name suggests. And then I started becoming more like not more theoretical aspect, not like practical applied kind of industrial psychology, but instead more theoretical social psychology stuff. And at the time, you know, I started my PhD then, I think, in 2012. So replication crisis was not a big deal back then. So it was still cool to be a social psychologist. Uh, and yeah, but then I, then I actually became more and more interested. I know there are a lot of problems, etc. But I think it's a cool time to be social psychologist at the same time, especially for the younger generation. Not maybe the other, other people, but, you know, because there are a lot of things to fix <laughs> and probably we will be the ones who will do that. So I think there's also, you know, it's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity as all crises are for, for people like us. And you're right that, you know, in countries with, 
you know, poor countries or less developed or whatever you call it. So uh, you have less funding, less opportunity to study due to the, these kinds of things. But at the same time, uh, living in, for example, a country like Turkey, let's say, uh, you, you kind of are intrinsically interested in social psychology because people are sometimes not you know of course people are very similar in on an individual level usually around the world but you know uh, how they behave in a group as a society as a culture you know it's always very interesting so when i when someone asks me what what i do and when i say social psychologist usually they, they don't know what social psychology is and that i try to explain in simple terms and then the most common response I get is that, well, we need a lot of people like you because we need to fix <laughs> this uh, this people's psychology kind of response. So I don't think, uh, so I think it's necessary and it's interesting and someone has to do it in Turkey and also in other countries. Of course, I'm not the only social psychologist. There are a lot of uh, people like me, but uh, I think there are some upsides uh, as well in addition to the downsides of this. Mm. Quick follow-up. So, um, Yesha University, what's sort of, is, is it the most universities there have psychology departments and is specifically social psychology departments? Is, is it sort of growing? Um, I would imagine, like, it seems to me there's always students interested in taking social psychology and studying it at the undergrad level. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, what is, what is sort of the interest level there and um, in terms of just university support, government support for the field, um, what's, what's that like over there? So actually psychology is one of the most popular departments. I think that the last time I checked, I think there are maybe like 80, 90 different psychology departments in Turkey uh, throughout uh, different cities. Uh, it is very popular among students. Uh, but of course, there are not much job opportunities. That's something they 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 don't <laughs> they don't predict when they start undergraduate uh, school. But it's popular. But social psychology per se is not. You know, the most popular one is I think predictably clinical psychology mm -hmm. because it's, I don't know that's that's where you can make money. Uh, but social psychology is also yeah. There are a lot of actually. PhD programs, master's programs on social psychology. It's also one of the popular ones. And then to follow up on Paul's question about the funding, um, yeah. do you get like grants or like how does your, how's that work? Yeah, so, about, so yeah, yeah, we do. Actually, just today I received an acceptance on a grant from a, from a uh, Turkish Council of Research Science or whatever I, I forgot the full name so it's a good news so we do but the kind of amount of money that you get is not comparable of course uh, to, to the western countries uh, especially you know you know if you think about social psychology especially you know maybe it's, it does might not apply to other areas but uh, what's the most common data collection technique nowadays? It's me mechanical Turk or, you know, prolific or whatever. So you need to spend uh, money 
on you know maybe pounds or dollars or etc so you need to spend the same amount of money although you have much less money so which is kind of i think one of the big problems that people are not aware <laughs> because you know they don't experience the problem let, let me uh, give you some context for example my monthly income uh, if you convert it into us dollars it's slightly above $1,000 per month. So it's not very, it does, it's not as bad as it sounds considering the purchasing power it has in Turkey. But I cannot even dream of just paying out of my pocket and, and getting like 1,000 participants on Prolific every day. I know a lot of social psychologists in the Western world that, uh, you know, they just do it for fun to see whether something will come up. Um, Is so that that's, a thing? I don't know anyone who would spend their own money on frivolous studies. I don't know, Paul. Of I've, course, not. I've spent my Probably. own money on studies. <laughs> really? Um, of course, I would never do a frivolous. <laughs> frivolous. No, I mean, well, but no, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good point, um, and I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this so you i mean i know like you rely on a lot of publicly available data and yeah. there's you know there's plenty because i don't have money <laughs> yeah there's, there's plenty of that out there these days um and then i mean do you have uh do you have uh sort of research participant pools at the university um or sort of i mean one one thing i've done is just send my research assistants out into the public just to ask people to fill out a survey, and that worked surprisingly well. Um, yeah. In at least in the cultural context of Berkeley, California, I, w I wonder if if that's something that could help. Yeah, yeah, of course we do. We do student samples, obviously we do. But you know, it usually takes longer time. You know, you know, sometimes you know, uh, sometimes you need to incentivize people somehow for certain kind of studies. You know, that's just one example, obviously, for, for you know, we, we can come up with different examples as well. But I, I brought it up because this is something that I, uh, that I recently struggled with. For example, I received an uh, acceptance for a grant application from a local institution. But by the time, uh, you know, between when I applied and when I received acceptance, uh, my uh, cost you know the amount of money that i need to spend because it was like i plan to collect a sample from prolific for, for one of the studies and the cost because when you convert to turkish shiraz it went up 50 percent by 50 percent in, in several months so i kind of i was very helpless and trying to do very you know i was like uh, you know, just doing some uh, calculations instead of uh, thinking about the academic side of the issue, etc. So I think it's it's an important issue, and it, it's I think become you know maybe back in the good old times when everyone was collecting on the student samples, it was like more egalitarian maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but nowadays you need money for everything, in, uh, including data collection, which makes it a little bit harder for us. Of course, I don't think there's a solution for that, but, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I was thinking is, um, like, with uh, 
with cultural psychology, it, it almost seems um, necessary to collaborate a lot, like uh, across yeah. different countries, right? Because, and I think, hmm, maybe I'm jumping ahead in our topics here, but I, I really feel like, um, I know you don't exactly call, you don't, do you consider yourself a cultural psychologist? I don't think so. I did some cross-cultural research, but not exactly. I, I'm not yeah, yeah. a cultural psychologist. Yeah. I mean, some of your stuff touches on it, where you're looking at weird versus yeah. non-weird differences. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, it's sort of reading, reading through some of your work sort of reminded me of things that I've thought about quite often in terms of, like, I feel like cultural psychology is really interesting. And it, it, in terms of... Um, like there's this one paper that I, I remembered last night and I looked up. Do you remember the paper where they just dropped a wallet? No, they, they turned in a wallet in yeah. like 50, yeah. 80 different countries or something like that. And they just tracked yeah. these really, really large striking differences between the countries, like it, in the sort of Scandinavian countries, it was nearly a hundred percent of the wallets were sort of people tried to return them to the owners and then, I, f I forget the countries that were at the bottom, but there were, I think China was at the bottom and it was like 10% of the time it was. And, and it, what I find a number of things really interesting about this paper. And, and it's, it's not also about the amount of money because they adjust for the. Yeah. 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 And interestingly, sh they showed that in most countries, uh, if it had money in the wallet, it was more likely uh, that they would follow up and try to return it. Um, Except for Mexico, <laughs> they're the one sort of just <laughs> pragmatic country where people are like, they're actually getting a financial gain makes you uh, less likely to um, uh, return it. Anyway, okay, so on a number of levels, I just think like humans are naturally interested in these differences. Like I think nobody sort of heard about that paper and didn't really have this voyeuristic interest to like look at look at the results and see these, these differences between the countries. Um, so it does have that, um, just that spark of interest that drives like so much of what makes our field possible, right? Like students want to study social psychology. This is why universities need to hire people like you to like teach courses. And that's why there's jobs in this. So much of it just comes from people are interested in this stuff. And so cultural psychology has that in spades. Like people are, people I think are fascinated by this. So I think there's a real sort of imbalance between how interesting it is and how much potential there is in this field and how much work is actually being done and how much progress there is. Like most departments in the US don't have a cultural psychologist and there's really not that much work being done. And I think this wallet paper is a good example of just sort of, I mean, it's just a prank, right? It's kind of like a TikTok prank that a teenager could could think up like um let me let me hand in this wallet and see if they like it's such a sort of simple idea but so hard to execute right because <laughs> imagine trying to do this in 80 countries and um, it, remarkably this paper had like four authors or something like that right oh. so i just was thinking like it just seems like a logistics problem that you know because it's hard to it's hard for any one person to feel like they understand more than one culture, right? Like you can read yeah. sort of papers and, and look at data sets and stuff like that. But I don't feel that any, any, almost like any amount of data sets 
gives you a, a good understanding of, of different cultures. So I almost just think inevitably the answer is just a lot of collaboration across countries. And I mean, this, so- this can solve the resource issue too, right? So like, if you, like, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to depress you, but I collaborate with this guy at university of Chicago, Alex Koch. And he's literally said to me, I, I have too much. I don't know what to do with all the resources the university has given me. He's like, please pitch projects to me. Please help me spend this money. Cause I don't know what to do with all this money. Right. So you have this just obvious imbalance. Could you give me email? <laughs> I have something to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, is it, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't really be the burden on you to have to be like reaching out and trying to sort of beg sort of people in, in, in rich US or Western institutions to collaborate with you. But I do think that could be the key to opening yeah. the door to resources and progress in cultural psych. And, I, and yeah, I think with the internet and with everybody getting more um, familiar and comfortable with remote work and collaboration and stuff like that, maybe that's oh. an area where uh, yeah. there's a lot of potential. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. So I actually, you know, I, you know, I agree with you, first of all. Yeah. And I, I do that. I have, a, I have some papers with like huge, large collaborations with other people. And I have some other ones that are still uh, uh, underway there, uh, in preparation. So I've contacted people, we're working together, etc. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, as you mentioned, the, the wallet paper is like four authors. I, I don't know. I don't know exact uh, specifically about that paper, but I thought about the same thing reading another paper recently because I've seen that, you know, so there was this paper uh, doing a study on 20 plus countries. Okay. So one of the countries is Turkey. So I was interested, oh, who, de- who did they work with, you know, in Turkey? Because this is like the kind of stuff I'm interested in. And I looked in the, through the, you know, author list and there was no Turkish name. And, you know, and I have experienced this multiple times. Actually, this is not only one paper. Uh, usually in the acknowledgement section at the end of the very paper, there is a Turkish name, a graduate mm. student who is being thanked for collecting data, doing all the stuff mm. in Turkey. Or there's not even any mentioning of names. So it is not, you know, I think it is, it should feel very natural. If you want to collect data in one country, you need to maybe collaborate <laughs> with someone from that country. I, I don't know why it's not very obvious to everyone, but, you know, um, but that's not people usually prefer. And it's interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject of, I guess we're just jumping into like weird and cross-cultural research. First, I just, uh, in case any of our listeners don't know the acronym that we've been using, uh, weird is Western educated, industrial, rich, democratic. Um, and the, it's a controversial acronym. People disagree about, uh, what it should stand for, whether it's actually capturing what we want to be capturing, uh, all sorts of things. Um, but we're just going to use it because that's what people use. Um, but anyway, so that's just a little background for our listeners, but so I have a, a controversial comment slash question as we do on this podcast, um, <laughs> which is, uh, what's the point of, um, doing, 
non-weird research for so like I'll, I'll explain I'll expand a little bit but so if you're interested in a phenomenon like for example um how like what you you have a few papers on this um conspiracy beliefs about covid and how they relate to different outcomes and what might cause them and uh things like that and if you are a u.s researcher and you just study that within the u.s uh and you find whatever relationships you find um then okay so that's that's you could just do that but then you might say well what if it's different in other countries and so you look in other countries and it is different and so now what do you do well, you're in the U.S. and you care about policies and outcomes in the U.S. So you say, okay, it's different in other countries, but what I care about is the country that it's, is applicable to me. And so I'm just going to look at it within the U.S. Alternatively, you could look at it in other countries and see that it's the same, in which case it doesn't matter that you did that all that extra work and found out that it was the same. And so like, I think like I can see value to just like learning for the sake of learning that there are cultural differences and that's sort of like what cultural psychologists do. But for the rest of us who are studying like political psychology, moral psychology, uh, more basic like cognitive stuff, why, what's your argument for why we should care about differences across cultures? Okay. So let's say you have a very robust finding in across different U.S. samples. Okay. So, but when you try to, as you said, when you try to replicate it in another country, it fails. So the problem is, I think here is that when you propose a hypothesis, you say X causes Y and it's because of this, this is the explanation. You have a mediator or whatever, you know, the proper JPSP article. And then when you try to replicate it in another country, it doesn't work. It, it means that at the same time, not only that it doesn't work in a different country, but also it doesn't work in the way that you think it does because the mechanism that you propose is not working. So obviously you miss some confounding variables. It's, it might be working, but it's probably not working because the reason you think of maybe there are different factors so it doesn't only tell us something about turkey or a different country but also it tells us something about how american people's minds work because there's something you're missing um so and also you know this is not exactly the same thing but i had some uh, experience similar to this for uh, in my phd dissertation i worked on something called compensatory control models so i don't know if you heard it before it was popular like 10 years ago so basically the argument is when you lack personal control uh your belief in external control increases for example you say well okay i don't have personal control over my life but it doesn't mean that you know my life is completely out of control because it's under the control of god let's say or or government or whatever so, and the, the, the reasoning was that why, why would that be the case? Why would that people want to compensate? Because the, the theory was saying that because uh, people do not like randomness. So uh, when you feel out of control, it kind of creates a sense of randomness, chaos. 
So people want to make it under control somehow, even though I'm not in control, maybe God would control it for me, something like that. So it's like to control for randomness. So I said, okay, if this is the underlying reasoning, uh, why would I manip- why wouldn't I manipulate uh, randomness directly and to see how people react on Turkish samples? And I also looked into some cultural differences as well. I was thinking there would be some cultural differences. By culture, I mean like not like cross-country comparisons, but like people with uh, independent self-control versus interdependent self-control kind of difference. Because it's very related to attitudes about control, right? Personal control. So, and I found nothing, nothing, you know, over and over and over again. I, I think I did like nine experiments in a row and nothing. There was only one study uh, that I kind of now, I said, okay, this is not working with randomness. Maybe I should just go and directly try to replicate the original study. Because the original study, you, they uh, manipulate lack of control. Okay, not randomness, but lack of control. So I did that. And the expectation was if when, I, when people feel deprived of control, their belief in God should increase. And again, it was a failure, okay? But then I somehow got it published in this specific study, not the other ones, in a journal. And, uh, and I looked into a moderator, et cetera, et cetera. Then I forgot about it because I get upset. I moved on to different topics. And I think one or two years after that, I've seen a paper that is citing my paper, okay? So this is a registered report on compensatory control model. And one of the authors is the original author who proposed the theory. And they looked into first the previous studies. I think there are like six or seven studies uh, doing exactly the same thing. And one of, uh, one of the paper is mine. And uh, I am the only one, according to the results, who trails okay the other ones they are all success when it like of course this is just the mit- mini meta analysis before the actual study and they do a registered report failure okay so I, I my estimation was actually the most accurate one and they actually failed not only in a non-weird country or anything they looked into us and also netherlands i think so western cultures so this the my point is this could be a sign that when it when it, uh, f- fails to replicate, it's not maybe only about it's. It might be about the culture, but even if it is about the culture, there is something wrong about. There might be something wrong about the mechanism that you have in your minds. That would be my answer. It's an interesting example, though, because it almost just sounds like. It's not necessarily a weird, non-weird difference. It's just a st- study that didn't replicate. Like, because if they if they can't even replicate it in the the Dutch or US samples, um, but I know you you have done some work looking at effects that seem to differ between weird and non-weird. Uh, so I was reading the paper about the um, relationship between uh, was it analytical yeah. analytical thinking and conservatism liberalism um we're going to talk about that and and basically sort of what the what the relationship is what the theoretical um what the main sort of theory is and what you found and why why you think it it might be different in in non-weird 
Yeah. Okay. So, so the idea is, and there's a lot of findings that support this, that there is a, a correlation between analytical thinking ability, or sometimes it goes by different names like reflective thinking or system two thinking. Um, so there is a correlation. It has a correlation with political ideology. Uh, and pe- people with higher analytical thinking ability are like more left-wing or more liberal. Mm-hmm. So this is something that, some, you know, we studied, especially my co-author has more, you know, research on this. Uh, and we wanted to look at whether it's, it is the same issue, you know, it's the same case across different countries. And... One thing we so it was like a, from a from a it was a secondary analysis of an existing data set. I think it was like thirty different. It was actually the many labs two study, the famous ones, the failure to replicate a lot of studies. So there are thirty countries in the data set with the available variables, and we found that there is heterogeneity, meaning the, the association, the correlation varies across different countries. And the, the, the thing that we, we wanted to look at, whether it kind of varies according to weirdness, because uh, many labs to the original study didn't actually find huge differences in terms of weirdness, you know, about which study would replicate or not. Uh, so we took the same measure of weirdness, which is, I think, you know, in retrospect, is kind of problematic, but, you know, still... Uh, we took the, that measure and used that as a, as a as a moderator to see whether it explains, and and it did. You know, for most of the study, most of the analysis, especially about social conservatism, like not economic conservatism, but more like being more traditional, more authoritarian. Uh, there was a negative correlation, meaning more analytical thinking people have uh, less social conservatism. But that association, and this was completely predicted, you know, in in terms of the existing literature. This is what what you would expect according to the literature back then. But the association was stronger in weird countries and smaller and smaller in non-weird countries. Um, We didn't really, uh, you know, it's not, we didn't give a definitive answer about why that would be. Uh, one potential reason might be, you know, we looked into the different sub-components of weird, you know, as Rachel said, you know, Western industrial education, and we took each letter separately and measured countries' measures on that, on those. And education level uh, was one of the more important factors. Maybe that could be it, but I'm not sure again. But also, at the same time, I think there is a problem that people miss a lot, especially, for example, uh, in Turkey. I know the situation is like that in actually across European countries as well, and probably uh, more so in more eastern countries. You can't really divide people into right wing, left wing or liberal conservatism. So it's, it's not like there is no two poles. You know, it's much more complicated. So uh, there might be a measurement problem with that as well, or dividing people into two sides. Maybe you need to be more like have more complicated clusters of people. Uh, so that could be another problem. But you know, 
We don't know for sure why this is the case, but we just try to kind of uh, make a point that, you know, it's, it doesn't always work exactly in the same way. Because there are some countries, for example, there is no correlation at all mm-hmm. uh, between taking liability and social conservation. And there are some countries there's a very strong correlation. Uh, so that needs to be looked into. That's interesting. The, um, when, I, when you sort of look at the US, uh, and especially sort of this, this um, analytical thinking, uh, it's often measured by these, this cognitive reflection task, right? So it's these wow. basic questions that are like, if uh, five machines make five widgets in five minutes, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? And there's this intuitive answer, which is like 100 minutes. The correct answer is five minutes. One, one machine makes one widget in five minutes. I hope I'm not screwing that up. Anyway, you, you read this and you're like, well, it's kind of like an intelligence test. Uh, and so, you know, in the, in the US, for example, there's this, you know, huge cultural divide like the thing that's predicting voting and rachel you might know more about this than me but the thing that's predicting party allegiance more and more is education right college educated people are leaning left uh non-college educated people are leaning right uh so it's not surprising at all that you would have this sort of relationship between people who can correctly answer this this question you know assuming that college educated people are more likely to be able to answer this question um but then yeah so i'm, I'm just wondering yeah like it, it does seem like something that could easily break down in another country you know you could think of countries where you just don't have as many people that have been to college right um so you don't have as much of this cultural shift going on and this sort of like class divide emerging that gets attached to sort of political political parties like you have in the u.s i was also thinking of you know there's places that like you know, I don't know that much about it, but like I'm in Venezuela, for example, I'm led to believe that the non-college educated people, sort of like the uh, the sort of uh, villages and, and are very sort of left-leaning, right? They're like very like pro Hugo Chavez and stuff like that. And it's actually the the sort of educated elites sort of lean more conservative. So you might even find an opposite relation there. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just very interesting. And I think it's a good example of why we can't, why we can't just sort of assume that what's going on in the U S is necessarily going to map on, uh, to, to other places, other places in the world. Education. No, go ahead. Education is definitely an important factor, but I think still we cannot reduce it to to educational differences because most of the studies are usually done on like student samples both in turkey or any united states doesn't matter and the people in in your sample are not very different from you know they are like classmates so uh so you're actually kind of uh, unintentionally controlling for educational differences in most of the studies so Education obviously would correlate, obviously, but it is still, even though it's people have the, exactly the same educational background, the analytical thinking about this still predicts, at least in some contexts, as I said. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so 
so given that there are these differences uh, between countries, I'm just going to take us back to my original question. Um, so why? So I guess like like there's two directions that you could go from here. You could say um, we need to study every time we study a psychological phenomenon, we need to study it across all cultures or as many cultures as we can so that we can get it like the actual truth of what's going on there. Um, or you could say whenever you do studies, the conclude the when you're like discussing it uh, and, and talking about the conclusions from the study, you should limit your discussion to like the sample that you collected it from. And so like you're not, you should never make claims about human nature uh, and human psychology. You should make claims about American nature and American psychology. If you're running a study in America. Um, And I think that, so I don't think that it's clear that in all cases we should do one or the other. Um, and it seems to me like in if we're studying something like political that's related to something like political ideology that really does have a completely different meaning in like different countries, then maybe we should go we should go down the path of just saying just study it in the context of your country and don't try to make claims about other countries and you'll maybe be able to like learn more that way because there's less it's like there's less of these complicated factors of like defining things and yeah it just seems like less messy and also that you yeah i don't know that's my yeah i i agree i agree it's not practical to do a cross-country comparison in all studies obviously it's not practical but i think we need to kind of you know there is also like a inequality in this aspect because i was also uh, intending to mention this but because whenever for example uh, we try to get a paper published, okay, usually uh, we are asked to uh, kind of discuss the cultural context in the discussion section. So maybe this is kind of, maybe the only, this is only the case in Turkey or in another country, but not in another. But I have never seen an American researcher discussing the American history or the American context in a paper. So Maybe they should do that. And, and I am not, you know, I, I think I should also keep in mind that this is like Turkish context. I don't, I don't mind discussing the context or making it clear about the context, etc. But I think everyone should do that, not just us. So, uh, and that, that should actually, you know, we should uh, make it clear what our assumptions are, what is the context, what the sample characteristics uh, that would actually solve a lot of problems. That's, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, that was kind of another question I had, right? Like, how much? I assume, like most papers I read are from US samples. Um, it is that the same for you? And what do you th- like when you read a finding um, that from a US sample? what kind of heuristics do you use to sort of incorporate this new knowledge in your worldview, knowing that it's from this different cultural context? Like, do you, is your default to sort of say, well, that, yeah, my default is that I can, I I assume it generalizes unless I can think of good reasons why it would be different. Or is your default, I assume it doesn't generalize 
and and this really teaches me nothing about my culture and, and until I see it like in data here. No, the first one actually it depends on the on on the reasoning and the kind of the theory. You know, some some of the things you know. Uh, maybe not in social psychology, for example, let's say cognitive psychology, etc. It sounds like very natural, like more biological, very core kind of things. And in social psychology, there are some things that kind of look like that, not although not exactly, but it, it depends, you know, it depends. But one thing, you know, the, I think the, the major difference maybe, for example, when, for example, let's say an American researcher or a student or whatever reads a paper and he or she is interested and they now want to do research on this, what they have to do in practice, that they have to extend this beyond, like they have to do some, you know, assuming that this is correct, like assuming that this finding is correct, what, what additional thing that I can do? You know, that's usually what people go for. And that's the publishable stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think in different cultures, the first thing should always, like, replicate the original result first yeah. before trying to change something else. Uh, that's, that's a hard lesson that, uh, you know, I, I learned in a very hard oh, way. Boy. I mean, and your experience, because that, that study that you told us about, the one with the compensatory control, yeah. it seems like, your assumption from the start was that it should replicate. Like you saw no reason based on the theory yeah. why it shouldn't replicate in a Turkish sample. So another example of how we can really screw people over if we do unreplicable, unreliable research, right? So like you have a finding in the West and then you are like, oh, this is an interesting finding. I don't see anything in the theory or like, let me, let me test if it's replicable here. You find that it doesn't replicate in Turkey. And then there's this ambiguity, right? Like, yeah. is this, did you find some really interesting cultural moderator or are you just, is your time just being wasted by uh, p-hacked unreliable research? So yeah, I think this is a, a strong argument with a sort of social justice inequality bent for pushing for more uh, replicable research practices. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this against opponents of open science in the future, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that what you're saying, uh, people should do that no matter what culture they're in. Like, even if they're in the same culture that did the original research, if you're going to build on that research, just have your study one be, like, a, a direct replication of that work. Um, and I know, like, not everyone has the resources to do that, but... That would going to spend help. a month's salary <laughs> trying to replicate. replicate well, you can, results. you know, reach out to your friend yeah. in Chicago. But, well, this is a good question, though, because, like, why is why aren't there MTurk workers or prolific workers from Turkey? I, I would imagine that, like, I mean, maybe there wouldn't be enough market or enough studies pitched to them, but I don't know. It's uh, We're going to uh, have uh, uh, the CEO of Prolific on like next week. And I, mean, I wanted to sort of ask her about this. Like, why is it still just US and UK people? Surely there's there people are, in Turkey. I think there are legal issues with that, you know, mm. in terms of the tax law or something, you know. Really? Uh, yeah. I don't think they, they choose to do it. Probably. You know, because I I recently wondered the same thing, actually. And I looked into the website of Prolific, and it says Prolific only hosts participants from OECD countries, 
except for Turkey and one other country I don't remember. Uh, probably there's a legal issue there. I don't. I don't think it's a preference. It could be a good way to earn, like, because especially if you're getting paid in the US, even though I mean the pay rate's not amazing, but like prolific, they pay the workers like eight dollars US an hour. I would imagine that's that'd be not so bad if you're, yeah. you know, a Turkish unemployed person with access to the internet. You could yeah. make more than psychology professor. <laughs> <laughs> Please ask that in the next yeah. episode. I, I I'm also interested in the answer. I will for sure. All right, cool. Well, so um, should we move on to the conspiracy theory stuff? Because I'm yeah keen to get into that. So you've done some work recently. Um, you've been very productive actually since the start of the pandemic. Um, doing work <laughs> on COVID. There's nothing con- else to do. <laughs> COVID <laughs> conspiracy theory. <laughs> conspiracy theories and what kind of predicts who who um sort of falls for and uh, adopts these beliefs and and what the consequences yeah. are um yeah what what's been the most interesting or what what got you interested in that in the first place and and what's been sort of the most um interesting findings that you've that you found in that yeah. area so um actually in our first paper uh we looked into what we you know mentioned the analytical thinking ability thinking styles kind of stuff and we were interested whether that would correlate with COVID-19 conspiracy beliefs as well uh, and not only that we kind of included some other variables as well to, you know theoretically relevant ones and it was actually correlated you know COVID-19 with COVID-19 so people with higher analytical thinking ability you know and we measured it exactly like like you said you know, using cognitive reflection tests at less uh, conspiracy beliefs, both generic, like more general conspiracy beliefs, but also COVID-19 conspiracy beliefs as well. And this is, this you know, several similar results were found in different studies. You know, it was actually replicated quite well in different countries. And I also got into this review paper. Uh, I'm, one, I'm one of the co-authors. And uh, we looked into different predictors of, COVID-19 conspiracy beliefs and also consequences of COVID-19 conspiracy beliefs. And there are a lot, right? So some of them are more about like rational thinking, education, etc. As, as we discussed, but also some social attitudes as well, like, like how much you trust your governments or scientists, your worldview, religiosity, etc. Those things are also um, um, important. Then I kind of recently became more and more interested in how all these individual and also social aspects may be interacting with each other. And I wrote one paper, which is under uh, under review right now, uh, and I looked into country-level corruption and how much people in those countries believe in different kinds of conspiracy beliefs. Because... And the reason that I was interested in, it's actually quite fits well with all of our discussion about weirdness, cultural differences, etc. Uh, in some countries, in some cultures, conspiracy theories sound at least relatively more plausible to you 
you know, I don't know, it's morning over there. I don't know if you had a chance to catch up with today's news, but there was an interesting news story today on Reuters, which is a German, you know, uh, news agency, which is very credible. And the news story is um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, when he visited, recently visited Vladimir Putin, um, he refused to take a Russian COVID-19 test because he was worried that Russian would get hold of his DNA. He didn't want that. Now, uh, I think this is, this doesn't make a lot of sense because what, what would they do? Are they going to make a clone of Macron? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's nonsense. But the point is, when, when, this, when this is happening in Russia, compared to, I don't know, maybe Belgium or Norway or etc. Even though maybe you don't still believe in or you don't you still believe that this is nonsense, its plausibility relatively increases. When I say Russians are trying to get all of Macron's DNA, but it's kind of relatively more plausible than the than the president in Belgium is doing that. So in some countries, because of the high level corruption or like the lack of uh, rule of law, for example, things that look like conspiracies are actually happening. Okay, so that includes Turkey as well uh, and a bunch of other countries and also United States as well. Actually, you know, um, mm. you know, there are examples that are usually given like the project MK Ultra, etc. You know, mm -hmm. probably you heard, you know, the CIA was actually doing secret mind control experiments. And this sounds mm. like complete conspiracy theory, but it was real. Mm. And in, but in some countries, this kinds of stuff happening more and some other less. So uh, I thought this would be related. And yeah, you know, in, you know, I looked into several cross country, very large data sets and people in more corruption, corrupted countries living conspiracy theories more. But what I think the most interesting finding was that I looked into the interaction, as I said, and I looked into how education relates to conspiracy beliefs and how this association differs across different countries. Okay, so what I found is education is negatively correlated with conspiracy beliefs, as you would suggest, as you would expect, sorry. But this relationship is strongest in less corrupt countries. And it becomes and the relationship becomes smaller and smaller in more corrupt countries. So in high corruption countries, whether or not you are high or less educated, it doesn't matter much for you to whether to you believe in conspiracy theory or not. So my argument, my explanation, of course, that could be alternative explanations, is that because it is now relatively more rational to believe in a conspiracy theory in a high corruption country. So uh, something that would be a predictor of rational thinking, like education, it loses its importance because it becomes more rational in that context. And I recently tried the same thing in a, another large data set, which is not in that paper yet. But I, again, I found exactly the same thing, so which kind of seems to be a, a, a kind of a phenomenon. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing that, I, I, that I'm studying at right now. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, it makes sense. 
I think like, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, uh, when you talk about more or less corrupt countries living in the U S I don't know how to classify this country. <laughs> I was just wondering the same thing. Certainly. certainly so yeah, U.S. is, according to Corruption Perception Index, U.S. is in a better position than Turkey, but lower than almost all of the European countries and Western countries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's definitely not completely broken. And we saw like Trump trying to overturn the election and challenge it. And the courts just, you know, threw out all his... All, all, all these challenges based on not having any evidence. So it, it definitely seems like the systems work to some extent. I mean, but yeah, I'm just not, like. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about like what defines, like how do you define a corrupt country? Because like if uh, lobbyists and like corporations are the ones who are actually writing our bills, like which is what's happening in the US, is that corruption or does it not count because that's like how the books that that's like legal like is it only corruption if it's going against the stated like laws and procedures i don't know sinan if you have a clear well okay i use the measure on something called corruption perceptions index which is kind of a international famous um index i think and it's called corruption perceptions as the name suggests you know they actually, I think, rely on expert reports about and also some insiders about how well it is easy to get your way done, for example, through your networks, bribery and kind of stuff. And they uh, they measure, you know, they have a detailed methodology paper, but I don't uh, uh, exactly remember all of them, but it's more about these kinds of reports. Mm. Yeah, I feel like all of us have this uh, enormous epistemic challenge in our lives of trying to figure out who we can trust, right? And, like, I, I've sort of done this exercise with myself a few times, sort of just thinking about what do I believe and why do I believe it? And, like, you follow the links of, well, I believe this because this person believes that, and why do I believe I can trust them? And then very soon you realize you're completely really unmoored from anything other than like, I trust these people because I trust them. And I, I just sort of like have faith in certain institutions or certain actors in a society. And I just would assume in a more corrupt country um, where sort of like uh, shady stuff is happening all the time um, and everybody is sort of aware of that. Like, I, I don't think there's many countries that people are, com- are sort of blind to uh, the sort of, I guess, hidden power structures or like the shadiness. I mean, even like, yeah, like, so I'm interested in like, for your average person in Turkey, it, it's probably a greater epistemic challenge to figure out who to trust where to get reliable information from and and things like this. And I, I I do think in that environment, it it might not be irrational to believe in certain conspiracy theories or or at least, I don't know, at least to be agnostic about a lot of things like Mm -hmm. this could be this, this could be that. I think like um, we are not with, with some things like I, I was reading your paper and I was so interested that it seemed like almost at one point, 
you you were classifying the lab leak hypothesis as a conspiracy theory. Uh, whereas, like, I, I'm not sure the status of it now, but now I believe, you know, a lot a lot of people think it is possible mm-hmm. that sort of COVID yeah. came from lab, and that's just sort of one example that turned out to maybe be true. I mean, the vast majority of them, I think, are kind of crazy and absurd and stuff like that. But I just, yeah, like, well, what? Well, I mean, like early on in the pandemic, just to give another example with the, like saying that masks aren't, uh, aren't useful and you shouldn't be uh, wearing masks basically. And then like, I think there were people who were saying like, that's it. Like there, there were conspiracy theories about that, about like that, that, that people are lying to us. And then, turns out that they were um but yeah so so like i think just not you don't know what is a conspiracy and what isn't until you actually find out the truth and like it seems like like we shouldn't be defining conspiracy theories based on whether they turn out to be true in the end because we should like have some way of thinking about them Mm. like before their uh truth status is determined yeah, because it's like, well, this is one thing I kept saying, because my, my personal trainer back in San Francisco was talking about his friends that were buying into all these COVID conspiracy theories. And the only response, given the sort of, like, if even if you understand that you don't have airtight reasons for believing in what you believe, the one thing that I always sort of come back to is, well, okay, like, you're skeptical of the CDC and you're skeptical of these institutions why are you not skeptical of this YouTube video that you just watched, right? Like, so what justification is there for jumping to sort of certain belief in this other thing that you don't really have a strong epistemic chain or like airtight reasons to believe in? And so that's where I kind of come down with this thing is like, well, why do we all, why aren't we all more comfortable with saying, well, I'm not sure. Uh, and I'm not sure that I totally trust the government on this, but I'm also definitely not sure I totally trust uh, Joe Rogan's latest guest. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So actually, so there are, you know, there are some conspiracy theories that could be true, right? Theoretically, you know, some of them, uh, some others that are completely nonsense, like, reptilian aliens are like disguised as humans kind of stuff well i actually so think that's why that's why macron didn't want his dna <laughs> probably <laughs> so uh, there are differences in plausibility but you know and also sometimes the plausibility of the conspiracy theory changes over time as you said the lab leak theory uh, but i don't think we should stop saying we should stop calling that conspiracy theory because even though let's say let's for the sake of argument let's imagine that it's kind of in the future okay it is proved that it was leaked from a lab okay now it doesn't change the fact that in the early 2020 it was a conspiracy theory and people didn't have any data any you know logical reason to believe in that but they still did the, the fact that it turned out to be true is just they got lucky, you know, and they got unlucky in a bunch of, all, you know, maybe a million other stuff. This is the only thing that they got lucky. So I think we should consider how people interpret uh, the theory, what kind of data, what kind of information, evidence they're relying on. You know, whether it turns out to be true or false in the long run shouldn't be that important because 
if you know the the most basic the most common finding in conspiracy theories literature is that every conspiracy theory is correlated with each other you know regardless of the content even the mutually exclusive conspiracy beliefs are positively correlated with each other you know there's one study for example people who believe that princess diana was killed was assassinated also believe that princess diana is actually still living somewhere in the world you know uh, this this cannot be true at the same time but they they do believe so my point is we need that link for that study <laughs> my my point is you know um a person who is believing who believed in a lap league theory didn't only believe in that theory okay they believed in like million of other conspiracy theories and just out of one million one of them you know turned out to be true it's not a big deal it's not the main point i think it's not the main problem that we should we should look into the, the real problem is the kind of how you interpret the data the, the knowledge the information yeah um so i guess jumping off of like what we should be doing um do you from doing this research um has it like is there anything that we can take away from it to apply and change things and make people believe in conspiracies less um like what can we what are the applications of your work well i don't know you know I'm not sure whether there is any application or for or to do to individuals, you know, because it's more like the, about the relevance of corruption, which individuals usually do not have control over. But I think it highlights a problem that you know we can, you know, usually because there are a lot of you know not all of the studies, but most of the studies in conspiracy theories literature is kind of. They're focusing on how dumb people are, basically, you know, you know they, because they can think of, they have these cognitive biases, not, not educated, etc. And it is true, you know, it, that these things are correlated. But at the same time, institutions are very important and how much trust they provide is very important. So you can't just expect people to do the right thing when you, you know, lie to them all the time, for example, you know, trust in, for example, a conspiracy belief is usually like a lack of trust for the mainstream explanation of an event, right? So there's a mainstream explanation of why this happened and you don't believe in that and you look for an alternative explanation. And this is, this has a lot to do with the fact that you don't trust the source of that explanation that is why you're looking for the alternative ones. So that's kind of the triggering point, actually. Um, so we should actually look, uh, kind of highlight that more, maybe instead of, not instead of, but in addition to working on individuals, but also make some pressure on institutions about how they should communicate with the public, how, how they can build trust. Uh, those things are overlooked for now, I think. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting um, take home point from this. Like, if, if it is, you know, that like this, these individual differences will always exist. But if your work is kind of showing that, no, like if there's a, they, they become a lot more powerful in a more corrupt society, then it does it does suggest that there are structural things that can be changed. Um, 
Speaking of which, so obviously, like, I think COVID misinformation, COVID conspiracy theories have been incredibly harmful. They're, they're a huge social problem. Um, and it's, and people are worried about this for a very good reason, right? Um, it's, it has been pretty crazy. I don't know that the, what the Turkish situation has been like and how, um, how harmful the conspiracy thinking has been over there, but you can just sort of, man, in the, in the U S if you just look state by state and you, you, you sort of look at like this, how it became such a partisan issue and take up of take up of vaccines, for example, and how that sort of is predicting death, death, deaths. And like, it has a, these things have a real cost, especially with something like COVID and there will be other challenges like COVID too. I mean, climate change is an obvious one, um, but there'll be more. I mean, that, I don't know if you saw that movie, don't look up, but it was just, it was so believable, like this, how this, this thing became just pol- politically polarized. And Rachel, I know you have critiques of, of that movie, but um, anyway, a lot of people now, uh, ever since the start of COVID, um, in the US at least, um, kind of curious how, how, how it's been in Turkey, are sort of more and more thinking that um, censorship is the answer, right? We have to just anybody spreading COVID misinformation and misinformation is just defined on this sort of ever-changing basis uh, on like sort of what, what aligns with what the government and the CDC are saying about this and want people to be saying should be sort of uh, censored, taken off social media platforms, just basically keep these ideas away from people, um, stop people hearing these ideas and then they'll adopt them less. And I actually think it's really interesting and I, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. So I was listening to, so there's a podcast, um, you might listen to it, Decoding the Gurus. Um, one of the, they've been talking about Joe Rogan a lot and spreading of uh, sort of COVID misinformation and popularizing COVID conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And uh, one of the hosts, Matt, was saying something that sort of sounded true to me uh, as I was listening to it. And he was basically saying, look, all these people that are just pro-free speech and anti-censorship should at least admit that part of the cost of that is uh, allowing COVID misinformation to spread to more people, allowing conspiracy theories to spread to more people, and therefore, you know, uh, increasing um, opposition to vaccines and, you know, masks and uh, social distancing and what, you know, whatever COVID policies reduce harm. So there is, you have to accept that if you don't do the censorship thing, there is a cost in terms of deaths and sickness and and health and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it sounded true to me. And I was like, yeah, like that, that, that does seem right. That if you don't have censorship and you allow people to spread misinformation, there would be greater uptake of conspiracy theories. But then I started to think, well, actually, we don't, we don't know that for sure. Like it's at least possible to me that if from the start of the pandemic, you were sort of instantly blocked from social media and the internet, the minute you said anything that, that didn't align with government policy, that that could, uh, so just fan the, the flames. Of, yeah. yeah, fan the flames, so to speak. And I, it's probably a case-by-case case thing, and I, I don't know, 
Um, but I'm, I am curious about this and I, I don't, I think Matt is probably right, but I'm not, I'm also not sure it's a complete slam dunk that you can totally assume that censorship works in the way that people are assuming it will. Like, let's just get Joe Rogan off Spotify and that, that will save lives. I'm not sure it will save lives. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, I, I, and to begin with, I'm, I'm not even sure whether it's something doable, you know, practically speaking, you know, because the internet is so wide, you know, I don't know, but let's assume that it, it is, it is doable. You know, I have some doubts because, you know, for example, uh, I have read this paper recently where they, it's not censorship, but, you know, when someone um, tweeted on Twitter of a news story that is fake, okay, a fake news story, and there's, there's this bot, you know, automated bot, which goes there and directly, you know, asks politely and, uh, you know, it says, well, this is not actually true. Here's a fact check website, you know, something like that. And then they follow that person who is being corrected and whether his or her behavior changes. And they found that it, it actually backfired and the person who was corrected uh, well, actually uh, started sharing more polarizing content uh, on Twitter, so it, so it could backfire. And also another problem, as you mentioned, where where would we draw the line, right? So I once heard this: someone says, when there is a line, it moves. You know, uh, it, it's never fixed on a certain uh, space. So, uh, and also I I think we should remember that all of these things are kind of originated from the. From the uh, from the fact that people do not trust usually the government or the institutions or the experts and mm-hmm. censorship would actually kind of you know increase that like bolster that distrust. So I'm not sure. I'm you know, um, but maybe on a positive side, maybe it could work on some segments of society. You know, censoring this information because you know some people are like completely very radically opposed to COVID-19 vaccines, for example. But some people are just hesitant. Mm. Uh, so for the hesitant ones, it could work if you just keep them away from this information. But the other ones probably put backfire. So it would maybe also depend on the on the target audience. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, it does seem like just messy and hard to figure out. Like I think that there are a lot of people who are just like mainstream, like a lot of my family members who believe in these conspiracy theories, like they wouldn't know to like go to a different social media site or like join like 4chan or 8chan or whatever, whatever the sites are these days, they would just like stay on Facebook and Twitter and not be exposed to all of the conspiracy theories and probably not adopt them. Um, But people also have like real life uh, relationships and like, as long as there's just one really extreme person who is connected to the, you know, the, the dark web of conspiracy theories, then Hmm. it doesn't matter if they're censored online because they can have those discussions in real life. And I think like it would be hard to measure to what extent conspiracy theories are spreading if they're being censored. And so we'd only really be able to tell 
on like mm-hmm. outcomes that of like vaccine hesitancy or for, things like that. And also for COVID-19, it's kind of more straightforward. But what about, let's say, political conspiracy theories? Uh, now, that's something governments would want to censor, right? So uh, even though it's there true sometimes. So it's kind of, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I think we could come up with more clever solutions. Um, you know, I need. I think we kind of need to make people somehow uh, trust in the people who they are supposed to be trusting, like experts in COVID-19 or the, or the journalists who are doing the, their job properly kind of stuff. So I think instead of censoring this, this information, we need to kind of power up the real information by by mm. uh, increasing that those strategy by bettering that, those strategies. So I think that should first that's the first thing we should we should go for in, uh, uh, instead of censoring. Yeah. So then, I mean, increasing trust in institutions seems like an impossible task in the U.S. right now, right? Because you. <laughs> You have this intensely polarized country, and yeah. one party is constantly telling you that you cannot trust the other party, right? And and as soon as one party is con- in control of the institutions, the other party and a huge media machine, and this goes on both sides, is telling everybody that they cannot trust the the institutions. So it almost seems like if you if you want to have a country where there are opposing political parties, but where nonetheless everybody sort of has trust in institutions that are at different times controlled by one, your party or the other party, maybe the, the core sort of comes down to needing to sort of reduce that effective polarization or... or yeah, and that's uh, that's this diabolical problem that I'm not sure there's solutions to. But there's yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we have the same polarization, maybe even higher uh, in Turkey. But you know, I, I I get your point. I agree. You know, it sounds like something not very practical, maybe in the short run. But we could think about this in a more like small scale maybe okay so maybe we cannot change the government or the governmental institutions but we could change for example how universities or research institutions work or how scientists communicate with the general public for example how they can actually build that trust because some scientists some experts actually did very very terrible jobs right even though maybe they had good intentions but they are not they are like they have no idea how regular human mind works. Okay, so uh, I think it requires some social science knowledge as well, especially maybe psychology. Uh, so we could maybe on a smaller scale, we could do something. It might be in our power to do something to increase people's trust in scientific institutions. Um, yeah, but you know, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult question. Yeah. Because if you don't, yeah, if you take somebody who doesn't trust scientific institutions and 
you're a part of that institution. Every, everything you tell, like every piece of evidence you give them about how they can trust you, because it's sort of, I mean, the evidence for things like vaccines comes from like data sets. It's not, it's not necessarily something everybody can just look at and experience um, anecdotally, right? Um, and those data sets come from these institutions that are not trusted. And yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, horrible problem. And I, I just Absolutely. like, I hope the next pandemic isn't like worse than this one. Cause I don't, I'm not sure we'll do much better. Yeah. I mean, some people argue that if it was a lot worse or if it, you know, future pandemic will be a lot worse then that would just be different because people would take it seriously. Cause like they'd actually, you know, know people who die like very early on. And mm. I think that having those personal experiences probably has an impact. Um, this yeah. perception would be much different. And risk perception is very related to conspiracy because, you know, they don't usually pursue risk. And also, I want, you know, I recently listened to uh, from another person from a Turkish podcast. So this is my original idea, but he said, things would be a lot different if COVID-19 was especially dangerous for children, for mm. example, yeah. instead of older people. So people, you know, attitudes would be very, very different. Um, so it depends on a lot of factors. Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of this is just that people don't care about old people, but they don't want to say that. And so they come up with uh, all sorts of justifications for... Fingers crossed. The next pandemic yeah. is deadly for children. <laughs> we can only pray. <laughs> right, um, that's the conclusion. To yes. end on. <laughs> All right, Rachel, I know, I know you have to go. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, uh, spending the evening with us. Thanks for having me. Our morning, your evening. And, um, okay. yeah, keep in touch. Thanks for and, making uh, us a non-weird podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was it was uh, great to meet you and be here. Yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed this, the discussion. And thanks for tweeting, tweeting about us <laughs> and bringing in our Turkish fans. And so I'll uh, do it at least once, one time again because of my episode. So yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, great. Um, well, have a great weekend, you guys. Uh, you, and uh, yeah. Rachel, yeah, I'll see you ne- next time. We're going to talk to Kat, Kat Dama. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll ask her why why no Turkish prol- prolificus. All right, all right, bye guys, bye.